Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and minds and that you would speak. Our hearts have a restlessness that can only be met in you, O God. And so we gather together in this place, not simply because we're supposed to, to be good Christians, or because it's a habit, or because somebody pressured us, God, we we gather because our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And we ask God that in this interface between our own restless hearts and your word that is living and active, that you might speak and that you might meet us where we are at and that you might take us to where you want us to go. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So if you're joining us for the first time today, we have been in a series over the last several weeks entitled Human, and we have been talking together about those big existential questions of life. Who am I and where am I and why am I even here? And we've been asking these questions that every thoughtful person at some point in your life will ask. And, and, and so we've been, we've been looking at how the opening chapters of Genesis provide for us really deep and substantive and meaningful answers to these existential questions. And, and so over the last several weeks, we've seen that we are made for God. We are made in God's image. We are formed as creatures of dust. We are breathed into dust, made by God and for God. We inhabit a world that is God's creation. And we saw over the last several weeks that we have been made also for work and for rest and for stewardship. And we saw last week that we have been made male and female. And today what I want you to see is that we are not only made for God and we are not only made for a role in this world. Today, I want you to see that we are made for meaningful community and for deep, deep friendships. You were made for friendship. You know, I was thinking this week that there is a deep irony when it comes to the topic of friendship, I think, in American culture. Because on the one hand, I mean, no doubt we Americans value and we cherish friendship. I mean, so many of our great stories are about friendship. You know, what was it that caused Luke Skywalker to leave his training on the Dagobah system, even against Yoda's best wishes? Was it not that his friends were in trouble at Cloud City? And, 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 and in the Return of the Jedi, you know, the, the whole story opens uh, not with um, Luke and Leia and Chewbacca going to rescue the world from certain doom. No, they are out simply to rescue their dear friend Han from, you know, um, uh, what's that big green fellow's name? <laughs> Jabba the Hutt. See, you know, you know these stories. And, uh, you know, parents, of course, many parents in fundamentalist churches were worried about the Harry Potter stories because they thought, oh, well, these are stories about witchcraft. But look, you get into those stories, they're not about witchcraft. Harry Potter is about friendship. It's about deep friendship. And of course, the great defining fairy story of the 20th century, the Lord of the Rings, at the very heart of that story was the friendship of these four hobbits. Now, I know some of you are like, well, I don't geek out on those stories, Josh. But what about the Guardians of the Galaxy? I mean, think about Peter Quill. What was it in the last, the, the very last, the, 
the great guardians of the galaxy. Like Peter Quill went on mission to rescue his dear friend, Rocket. And, uh, and, and even back in the 80s, we knew this. Remember the movie Stand By Me, some of you? There's a line, you know, it's a, a story from the 80s about these 12-year-old these, these boys who are these dear friends. And there's this line where the narrator says, those friendships that I had at 12, I don't think I've experienced anything like it. Has anyone? You know, and what was it that drew so many, so many of, of, of us into stranger things, you know? And, and for, for those of us who grew up in the 80s, of course, there was the nostalgia but, um, but, but, but this also was a story about deep friendship between Mike and Will and Lucas and Max and Eleven. And of course, what was the most popular series of the 90s? It was Friends. And so many of our favorite characters, we wouldn't know one without the other. I mean, where would Thelma be without Louise? or Butch Cassidy without the Sundance Kid, or Pumbaa without Timon, and Mike without Eleven, or Tom without Jerry, or Batman without Robin, or Piglet without Pooh Bear, or Hatter without Alice, or Toad without Ratty and Mole. You know, and, and so many of our favorite songs, especially those ones that make us feel all nostalgic and weepy, what are they about? They are about friends. You know, that iconic song by Bill Withers, Lean on me when you're not strong and I'll be your friend and I'll help you carry. Come on. Oh, it, you are, you're feeling it right now. I mean, even the Beatles, of course, they knew too that even with all of their money and fame, they couldn't get by without a little help from their friends. And James Taylor, you know, sweet baby James, winter, spring, summer, or fall, all you got to do is call. Come on. And I'll be there. You've got a friend. Somebody's joining me. Come on. You've got a friend. You know, and Randy Newman, you know, you've got a friend in me, you know. And who doesn't get a little tear in their eye when you hear Dionne Warwick sing, through good times and bad times, I'll be on your side forevermore. That's what friends... I just, I like, come on. You're like, let's... Why weren't we singing those, Ryan, for this morning? <laughs> But what is it that, that, that makes these songs so compelling and, and these songs so moving? It is, they're about friends. And so on the one hand, within American culture, I mean, for sure, within pop culture, we value, we celebrate, we sing about, we tell stories about deep and meaningful and abiding friendships. And so on the one hand, I mean, we, we value friendship. But on the other hand, we Americans are experiencing what our Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murphy, has named, quote, an epidemic of loneliness. You know, in a recent essay in the New York Times, uh, the, the editorialist, whose name is Patty Davis, she's the daughter of, or one of the daughters of former President Ronald Reagan, she wrote this reflective piece on the recent death, the tragic, untimely death of Matthew Perry. And one of the things that she argues in this essay is, as a former addict herself, she said, scratch below the surface of so many addictions, and she says, you find loneliness. And she quoted in uh, Matthew Perry's recent memoir where he wrote this. He said, quote, I'm constantly filled with lurking loneliness, a yearning, clinging to the notion that something outside will fix me. 
And Davis remarks, sadly ironic, this man who became so, ma- so famous for a show called Friends, and yet here he was haunted by this lurking sense of loneliness. And of course, he is not alone in the feeling of loneliness, is he? You know, the, the stats are, are pretty staggering. More than one-fifth of Americans over 18 say that they often or always feel lonely or socially isolated, which of course means that many of us, many of you all, one in five perhaps, knows this ache of loneliness, feeling like I just feel so isolated, feel so alone and feel so alone. And, and, and maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's because we're busy or, or maybe it's because we were hurt and so we're running from relationships. We don't wanna be vulnerable again. And maybe it's because although we're present with people, we find it really difficult to be present with people because we're always scrolling or looking at a screen or checking emails or texts. But, but a lot of us in this room knows the ache of loneliness. And of course, it's not just an ache in the interior soul. Loneliness is far more than a bad feeling. You know, the, the physicians will tell us that, that, that loneliness and people who feel socially disconnected are far, far more likely to become anxious and depressed. And of course, one of the reasons why we as Americans are so anxious and depressed, perhaps the most anxiety-stricken, depressed culture in the history of humanity is because we are also so lonely and so isolated. You know, researchers are finding that you are way more likely to have a stroke or experience heart disease or dementia or inflammation uh, or, or to take your own life if you are experiencing loneliness. According to Surgeon General Vivek Murphy, loneliness is as deadly as smoking 15 cigarettes a day and more lethal than consuming six alcoholic drinks a day and more dangerous for our health than obesity. He said, quote, addressing the crisis of loneliness and isolation is one of our generation's greatest challenges. You know, and, it, and it's telling that in, in, in countries like Japan and Britain, they have actually developed a position in politics called a minister of loneliness to help deal with this problem. I remember when I first read about that, I thought, that's odd. Like, what are we coming to, you know? But when you look at the stats, loneliness kills more people than terrorism and murder. And if that's the case, then maybe we need a minister of loneliness in our own culture. And of course, it's not just a national problem. It's not just something out there. It's something very real and personal. Some of you felt lonely around Thanksgiving dinner. And some of you, you were alone. Some of you, you weren't alone You were with family and friends, but you never felt so alone because you just feel so disconnected and so unknown, even with the people at your table. It's interesting, you know, Dr. Vivek Murphy, I was reading an article in the New York Times from him, and he was talking about kind of the epidemic of loneliness, but then he opened up his own life, which I thought was strange for a politician who who is putting a piece in the New York Times And he talked about his own existential experience of loneliness. And listen to what he said. He said, you know, toward the end of 2017, after he had just finished his first stint as a surgeon general, he said he felt incredibly, incredibly lonely. He said this, even when I was physically with the people I loved, I wasn't present. 
I was often checking the news and responding to messages in my inbox. After my job ended, I felt ashamed to reach out to friends I had ignored. I found myself increasingly lonely and isolated, and it felt as if I, I was the only one who felt that way. And it's interesting, people who, who study this issue say that the strange thing about loneliness is it is so incredibly common, and yet we all think that it's unique to us. Nobody else feels it like us. Look, you are not alone. But how does the Bible address this problem? You know, again, we've been in this series entitled Human, and one of the core aspects we learn about humanity from the opening chapters of Genesis is put like this. It says this, it is not good that the human should be alone. The Lord God makes this pronouncement. You know, it's interesting that in context here, up to this point in the, in the narrative, everything is good. You know, the birds, the bees, the flowers, the trees, uh, all of the sea creatures and the ocean and the land animals, it is all good. And it is, it is all bringing God delight and pleasure. And it is paradise and it's beautiful and it is all so incredibly good. But there's one thing, just one thing in God's world that is not good. God says it is not good for the human to be alone. Now we've said that these opening chapters in Genesis are what scholars have called archetypal literature. And archetypal doesn't, mean, doesn't make it any less true than something that might be literal history, but rather this is the truest kind of thing you can have because it speaks truthfully to us about the most important questions in life, which is to say simply this, these opening chapters are not simply interested in just the first two humans, it is making a statement about all humans. In other words, when you read about the Adam story, you are reading about your story. And so this text is making a fundamental claim, not just about the original human, it is making a claim, a fundamental claim about all humans. It is not good for any of us to be alone. Or to put it like this, you know, when I was in uh, Kenya, there were all kinds of wild animals wandering about. It's one of the beautiful things about Kenya. You know, there's giraffes, and then there's some zebras, and then there's some gazelle and some African buffalo, and they're all just, you know, an arm's length away, which is also kind of scary. And, um, but, but, you know, one of the things about gazelles is that they are herd creatures, and they find strength and protection in the herd. One of the things about a, an African buffalo is that it's a, it's a herd creature, and it is less vulnerable when it's with the herd. But you take one of those away, and you take one of the gazelle away from the herd, and they are at risk. They are vulnerable. And humans are herd creatures. You take us away from the herd, and we are at risk, and we are vulnerable. You know, um, lions in Africa, they, they participate in the pride, and, and wolves are part of a pack. Why? Well, because in the pride and in the pack, there is strength. You can hunt animals much larger than yourself when you are a part of a pack. And listen, human beings are pack animals. 
Uh, you were created to be in a community. You are more dangerous. Uh, you are more at risk. You are more vulnerable when you are alone and isolated, and you are stronger when you are together. In other words, let's just put it like this. When God makes this, this declaration, it is not good for the human to be alone. God is not simply saying that it's not a nice thing. He's not just simply saying, look, you know, it would be better as an additional additive in your life if you would develop some friends. No, he is saying, look, it is toxic to your humanity to live in isolation. You get sick as a human. That is why we are so fraught with all of our anxieties and depressions and all kinds of heart disease and, and all kinds of stuff that we're smitten with to greater and greater degrees when we are lonely. It's because we are designed as human beings to live in community. God says it is not good for the human to be alone. And so what does God do? Well, God gets to work to remedy the problem. Look what it says. God says, well, I'm gonna make him a helper fit for him. And so he goes to work and look what it says. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And, and you can see in the garden, there is an intimate relationship that's developing between the, the human creature, Adam, and all of the, the animals. They're coming to him and he's, he's looking them in the face. And it's almost like he's allowing the animal to present itself to him and then he gives it its name. I'm knowing this animal. I'm, 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 I'm getting close with these animals. And so the animals are being brought to the man. And the man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But in spite of these animals being brought to him and becoming close with him, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, friends, this is a remarkable statement. This is interesting because in the garden, who does Adam have? He has dogs. But the dog is not enough. I remember my friend, uh, he had a, a T-shirt that said, Lord, help me be the man my dog thinks I am, you know, <laughs> which I liked. There are cats. And as lovely as those little feline creatures are, the cat is not enough. They are way too emotionally distant to fit the deep need of a human. But there, there's a closeness with creation, but not just that. In the garden, get this, Adam is enjoying unbroken fellowship with the true and living God. God speaks to Adam. He walks with Adam in the cool of the day. And yet, nevertheless, this relationship with the animals, it's not enough. Even his relationship with God is not enough. It's as if the text is telling us there is a human-shaped vacuum in every human heart that only another human can fill. And so what does God do? Then the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh. It's interesting that it's while the human is asleep that God goes to work. In other words, who is providing this gift? It is not 
Adam providing it for himself. It's not the human creature being the human creature's own provider. Here God puts him to sleep, and here God, as an act of free grace, provides the human with this deep companion. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The 18th century commentator, Matthew Henry, famously quipped about this text. He said, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam. Note, not out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. And so here God forms a close and intimate marriage partner, brings it brings her to the man. And look at, look at what it says. The, 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 the woman is brought to the man like a father walking a, a bride down the aisle to meet the groom. And when Adam opens up his eyes, he's been sleeping. Now he looks up and he breaks forth into poetry and song. And he is now so excited. He's like, I've been looking at aardvarks all day. And now this woman, look at how beautiful she is and how amazing. And she's so perfectly fitting. And look what he says. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of the side of man. This is the first piece of art in human history, as it were. It's a little bit of poetry. It has symmetry, it has balance, it has chiasm, different features of Hebrew poetry. He breaks out into poetry. And, and, and what is he saying in the poem? He's saying, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, which is a poetic way of saying, as I see you, I now know who I am. I have found myself in you, by discovering you, I have come to a true understanding of me. In other words, we humans come to true knowledge of ourselves only in relationship to other people. You come to know yourself by coming to know others. Now, of course, this is, this is true in some very basic ways. You only come to know yourself as a parent or a wife or a husband or a brother or sister or an employer or an employee or a neighbor or a friend only in relationship to other people. These profound aspects of our identity are only known in relationship. We only know who we are in relationship to other people. And of course, there are profoundly personal ways in which you only know who you are in relationship to other people. Did anybody else feel like this? That strangely, when you uh, maybe got married, some of you who are married, you found that marriage actually was like a mirror and it began to expose things in yourself that, that, that you didn't see before? You know, it's like your, your brother, your sister tried to tell you about it, but you said, no, no, you know, your, your roommate tried to tell you about it. You're like, no, I could get away from them, you know, but, but now, now it's like a spouse and they're just, you're just like, oh, wow, this is like, this is real, what's going on here? And then you have children and through those others, more stuff is revealed about yourself. I had no idea how impatient I was, did you? We come to know ourselves in relationship to others. 
Community helps us know who we are. Now, of course, the primal communal relationship that is spoken about in this text is marriage. And so it closes like this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Notice this is describing a covenant relationship where two distinct people who are different are bound together in a covenant where they are committed to one another. And through that commitment, they are for each other and they are not against each other. And by joining together, they are able to do together what neither of them could do apart. They shall become one flesh. And within this deep covenanted relationship, it says the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. That is not simply a statement about physical nakedness. That's a statement, a profound statement about our humanity. We deeply long for relationships where they are so secure that you can be fully known, fully, as it were, naked before another human and yet loved all the way down. We long for that kind of relationship. And the text ends. Now, let me just stand back and I wanna make three simple observations And then I want to engage with us a bit on this text a little bit more deeply. Number one, this ache of loneliness is met and satiated through an intimate relationship that is marked by trust and vulnerability and commitment, where there is an other who is not you, who brings stuff out in you that helps you come to know you better, that challenges you and makes you a better human, and there is commitment, and there is safety, and there is security within that relationship. And so number one, the ache of loneliness is met through intimate relationship. Second observation, whereas this text talks specifically about the marriage relationship as a particular and a specific space where that deep need is met, where our ache of loneliness is met, or it can be met, It is not the only relationship that God provides to deal with the ache. You know, if you are gonna live into your humanity, you have got to deal with that ache of loneliness. You have got to have people around you. But listen, you do not need to be married. Uh, Some of you have lost a spouse. Some of you want a spouse and you're not yet married. Some of you feel called to singleness. You don't want to be married and maybe you don't even feel okay being in an evangelical space because oftentimes within evangelical churches, there's an idolatry of the marriage state. Listen, that is not the only way to be a fully flourishing human. Uh, The most human person to ever walk the face of the planet was Jesus and he was single and celibate. And yet he also had his need for human community satiated, but not in marriage, in a different form of relationship, in deep friendships with Jesus. It was Peter and James and John, deep and intimate, close friends. And of course, you could say the entire narrative of the Bible is a story of God forming a community to meet the deep ache of human loneliness. When God calls Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, and he encounters him, and he calls him in to, to go out to where he would call him to be. God puts a promise on his life, and the promise is that through Abraham, God is not simply gonna meet and be in relationship with Abraham. 
Instead, God is gonna form a whole community, a whole family from Abraham. And then he loads that family down with commands on how to be in covenant relationship with one another so that we humans can have the deep ache of loneliness met in community. And when Jesus comes on the scene and he starts calling disciples to himself, he never calls the disciple to follow him alone. He always calls the disciples to follow him in community with other disciples. Now, I'm sure that some of the disciples wished he would have called him alone. I just want a little me and Jesus time. I don't know a place in the gospel where there's anyone having just me and Jesus time. Jesus always calls the disciples to follow him in community with other disciples. And when he sends them out, he doesn't send them out alone. He always sends them out two by twos. In other words, that deep ache and that deep need for partnership and identity formation that's met in marriage relationship is met in other spaces, in other ways through what God has provided in the community he's forming. And ultimately, when Jesus calls us to follow him, he invites us to be a part of the church, which interestingly, in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, he echoes this passage of the two becoming one, and he applies it to the people of God. He talks about Jew and Gentile, two people being formed together in one new humanity. In other words, God's heart aches to put our broken hearts into community. And he has been at work throughout salvation history to form a family where we can find deep, intimate relationships. Our identity can be formed and, and that ache, that deep hole that we have for belonging and love and commitment and vulnerability and security can be met in relationship with other people. Third observation. The primary frame to view these relationships that God has put around us is gift. You know, I think this is interesting. The man, again, is put to sleep, and then God does all of the work and brings the woman to the man. This is gift, and this is grace. And God's work to form a family out of Abraham has been God's work. And God's work to bring a school of disciples around Jesus, that was Jesus's work. And, and, and the work of forming a new Gentile community, that is the work of the Spirit. The triune God is at work to bring us together as a gift of grace into community with other people, which simply means this, the primary frame through which you can view other people around you is gift. So let's stand back and let me just, um, you know, sometimes they talk about a preacher meddling with you a little bit. And can I just ask some questions that I hope will feel like I'm meddling with you a little bit? Give me an amen if you'd like me to do some of that. Sure. <laughs> Question number one. Be because I'm going to raise these questions because I, again, we live in a culture that mitigates itself against human community. And so a lot of us, maybe more than other people in other times and other places, know something of this deep ache of loneliness. And so we need to do some work, and I think these questions can do some work among us. And the first question that I have that, arise, that arose for me out of this text is this. Do I see the people around me as obstacles, problems, and constant disappointments? Some of you are like, that's like a checklist. Obstacles, check. 
Problems, check. Constant dis disappointments, yes. And I'm talking about people in the church family. I'm talking about your neighbors. I'm talking about your roommates. I'm talking about a spouse. I'm talking about kids. I'm talking about parents. I'm talking about siblings. The people that God has brought around you as a gift, do you view them primarily as a problem, an obstacle, or a constant disappointment? Or do you view the people around you as gifts? And let me just tell you a secret that you already know. Just about anyone can be viewed as either a problem slash disappointment or a gift. You can be viewed as a problem and disappointment or as a gift. And let me just ask you, what is it that helps you grow into being your best self? Is it when somebody views you through the frame of disappointment or when somebody sees what is there? and they see you. They see even in your brokenness that at least you're trying. They, they, they see your heartache, they see your pain, they see your wounds, and they know you, and they're like, I love you still, and I see the goodness that's there. You're not a disappointment to me. That helps you grow and flourish and become who God is calling you to be. We grow into our best selves when we are in this kind of community where we are viewed and we view others as a gift from the hand of God. You know, one of my favorite books, my favorite book on Christian community is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together. And he has a section in there in his first chapter that has stuck with me ever since I first read it. He's writing primarily in this uh, chapter to uh, seminary students who are a part of an underground seminary. Bonhoeffer is writing during the Nazi regime. And so he, he forms this, this close-knit group of seminarians who are living together in community. And he says this. He says, so often, he says, people come into the Christian community with an idealistic vision of what the community ought to be. And then they start walking around and they measure the living, breathing people around them by their idealistic vision of community. And Bonhoeffer says their idealistic vision actually becomes more destructive for the community than of any help. Because God has not called you to love your ideal of what a parent should be, or of what a sibling should be, or of what a friend should be, or of what, uh, uh, you know, what the church should be. God has not called you to be committed to and devoted to your ideal. He has called you and me to love and to be devoted to the living, breathing people around us. And one of the ways in which we can best love the people around us is to see the gift that is there and to give God daily thanks for it. You know, the Apostle Paul, all throughout the New Testament, strangely, in the, the churches where he has the biggest problems with, like the church of Corinth, that's just a mess, you know? There, there's people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, and there's a guy who's in an affair with, it's like his daughter-in-law or something weird, and there's all kinds of crazy stuff, and they're going nuts with uh, spiritual gifts. It's Christians gone wild, you know? And um, and Paul opens that letter by saying, I thank God for you. He's able to see them and see where God is at work in them. Are you able to see that? Look around and see the people around you for the gift that they are from God. Second question. 
Have I structured my life in a way that mitigates against friendship and community? You know, I was in Kenya a few weeks back, and I was talking to a group of young men who lived in the slums of Kawangari, one of the 10 largest slums in the world. And I asked them this question. I said, is there anything about living in the slums that an American like me might find surprising? Like, what do you like about it? Like, what do you like about where you live? And their question, the answer across the board was the same. They said, we love that we live so close to our friends and we see them all the time. And it's interesting, when you go into the slums and you walk into a little one-room house that has eight, 10, 12 people living in it, you realize people are not gonna stay in that room all day long. And so where do they go? They go out onto the streets. And everywhere you go, it's just flooded with people. People out dancing and laughing and talking and engaging with each other. And they're living in community. And it's the kind of thing that gets lost in a culture like ours, where so many of us have nice homes, where there's a garage we roll up into and we shut the gates and we lock the doors and we go back into the house and we kind of hide away and we are alone. Dr. Vivek Murphy shared a a story about a patient, he said, who came to see him, and he said he shared the most unusual story. He said he had worked for years in the food industry with a modest salary and humble lifestyle, but then he won the lottery. And overnight, his life changed, and he quit his job, and he moved into a larger house in a gated community, and yet as he sat across from me, Dr. Murphy said, he sadly declared, winning the lottery was one of the worst things that ever happened to me because he said he was wealthy, but alone. This once vivacious social man no longer knew his neighbors, had lost touch with his former coworkers, and he soon developed high blood pressure and diabetes. Listen, it's easy to blame others for our lack of community. Well, the church isn't reaching out to me. They're not nice. And listen, I get it. You, are, you feel like a victim because you are a victim. People have hurt you and they've let you down and they don't do enough. We don't do enough for each other. But listen, when it comes to living into community, this is something we have to take personal responsibility for. And we have to make choices. And for, for us, choices could be, I'm gonna move out of the house I live in because it is making me more lonely. And I'm gonna move into a place where I can be in closer proximity with other humans and I can cultivate relationships. There can be all sorts of choices we can make that in our culture seem counterintuitive and they seem so weird and why would anyone ever do that? It's because our culture is not good at this. And we need to make other decisions if we're gonna grow into being community together, amen? Amen. So have I structured my life in a way that mitigates against friendship and community? And final question, What wounds have caused me to avoid relationships for fear of getting hurt? Listen, one of the reasons why we structure our life in such a way that mitigates against community is because community has hurt us. People have hurt us. People have let us down. We trusted them, we let them in, and we disclosed stuff to them about our own life. And then when when we were in deepest need, they weren't there. They didn't even call. 
And when they discovered we had a different political view than they did, it's like we just stopped talking to each other. And how could that be? And, and it just seems like people have let us down. And what are the, the, the most sane and understandable things to do when you've been hurt after you've made your life vulnerable? You know, you've been vulnerable in a marriage relationship or in a girlfriend-boyfriend relationship, and they, they betrayed you, they hurt you. Like, you're like, I'm not going to open myself up to do that again. The most sane thing is to, is to, is to put a, a, a veneer of protection over you and to withdraw. You know, and, and some of you, you can relate very well to the words of that old Simon and Garfunkel song, A Winter's Day in a Deep and Dark December, I Am Alone gazing from my window to the streets below on a freshly fallen silent shroud of snow. I am a rock. I am an island. I've built walls, a fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need for friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. I have my books and my poetry to protect me. I am shielded in my armor, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one and no one touches me. I am a rock, I am an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. All of us carry wounds. And it's hard to risk again. And if you've been there, if you're there right now, I just want to say this to you. Jesus has come to deal with your relational wounds. There's this beautiful story in the Gospel of John where this woman, Jesus engages with this woman. He walks up to her. You know this story. He says, woman, can, can I have a drink of water? And she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, are talking to me, a woman from Samaria? And uh, he's like, hey, if, uh, if, if you knew who I was and you knew the kind of water I have to offer, you would ask me for a drink and I would have given you living water. She says, sir, give me this water that, that I, can, I, 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 can ne I, I, I will never thirst again. And then he says something strange. He says, go and call your husband. And she says, well, um, I, I, I don't have a husband. He says, that's right, you don't have a husband. You have had five, and the man you're living with right now is not your husband. What has he done? In that moment, he put his finger on her relational wound. And then the craziest thing happens. She has this encounter with Jesus, and she experiences something of satiation of her deep relational thirst. She finds some healing in this encounter with, the, with, with, with Jesus of this relational wound. And then she runs into the village and she starts declaring to all of the people of the village, she says, come and see a man that told me everything I ever did. Which I don't know why that would be good news to anyone. Come and see a man that told, like, no, thank you. I'm not going to see that guy. That's way too risky. How on earth could that be good news? Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Like he knew her all the way down and exposed her. And, and how, could this, how could this possibly, possibly be? 
Tim Keller said this. He said, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, that's a lot like being loved by God. And it's what we need more than anything else. Listen, Jesus has come in to the world to heal our deep brokenness, to give us an unending reservoir of living water that is his love and fullness and security that will never end and he will never let you down. He will never go away. He will never betray you. He will always be for you and never be against you eternally and unconditionally and unreservedly for you. And when you build your life and your identity on that love, when you dig your roots into that kind of security, you can actually begin to take a risk of once again trying out community. I think it was Dr. King who said, you don't need to go all the way up the stairs, not today, but you can take the first step. What is the first step you need to take stepping out of God's love and security into relationships. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we come with gratitude because you know us all the way down and you love us still. And we ask God that that love might break into our hearts and your love might be the courage and strength we need to take risks in relationships, to take the risk to be vulnerable, to take the risk to reach out to take the risk even after it's not been reciprocated to try again. God, would you form us together into a more authentic community of Jesus followers? And in this community, would you enable us, oh God, to find our hurts healed to find voices that will speak your truth over our lives, to find partners who we can join together with in ministry, to find help together for the battles we're fighting. God, would you continue to form us into that kind of community? And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.